My name is Sam Wickman. I was a participant at the 1972 Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. I was with all these Alakuri and European people that were showing their disgruntlement and expressing their disquiet at the situation which confronted Aboriginal people at the time. In 1967, there was a referendum, and that referendum took us out of the parks and wildlife into apparently the Commonwealth and State Government care. There's only eight uh, referendums in this country, and that was the one in 67 was probably the most successful referendum out of them all, where 95 to 96% of Australians deemed it necessary to bring us into the community, so to speak. By the 70s, Sydney, for example, had the largest Aboriginal or Koori population in any city. And these people had been conned to come to the city to get better education, to get better medical services, to get legal aid, employment possibilities, which didn't happen. And the pot was stewing. My involvement pre-embassy, Neville Perkins and I had a house in Chippendale where we had, uh, in inverted commas, barbecues, sing-alongs and drinks. No kumbaya stuff. We were talking politics. There were people like Gary Foley, Bruce McGuinness, Gordon Briscoe, Paul Coe, Isabel Coe, and uh, Bob Randall, the singer-songwriter. There were people like Bob Mazza, John Austin, and, of course, uh, Neville Perkins and myself. And we were talking politics and strategizing what we might do. There was the Black Panther movement, of course, pretty well publicized at that time. And that was another league that was happening, another scene happening. But this was more about producing some results out of encouragement to the major urban areas and indeed the rural areas of New South Wales. And we um, talked about what sort of protests might happen. We weren't aware that the lads were going to hop in a vehicle and go off up to Canberra and set up an embassy uh, for the Aboriginal Australians at that time. And why, you might ask, we might do these things. Sydney had the largest Koori population. We didn't have any health facilities apart from the existing bigoted hospital system and going off to see a doctor in his clinic and whereby we had to pay up front to see anyone. Now, you know, not having any employment and not really being educated people, we were quite frustrated about the prospect of these things happening. So in 1971, you know, people like Paul Coe, Shirley Smith, Gordon Briscoe, Dulcie Flowers, Professor Fred Hollows, Ross McKinner and Eddie Newman from the ALS, which had been recently set up, set up the Aboriginal Medical Cooperative Limited, the AMS was born in 1971, along with the Legal Aid Service. And um, those organisations were treated very shabbily. You know, the government by 72, the federal government and the country Liberal Party had not accepted their responsibilities that the 67 referendum had bestowed upon them. It was out of this disquiet and rumblings within Aboriginal communities that these two peak bodies were set up. And they really didn't take us seriously. We applied in 1971 for the medical service, for example, for 29700 And the government only gave us 13000 Again, in 72, we applied for something like 70000 And the government only gave us 14000 Needless to say, these organisations, the legal service and both the medical service, were run by volunteers, volunteer doctors, volunteer nurses volunteer lawyers, volunteer field workers. Mum Shell Smith was a catalyst to both of these organisations, again, being formed. And um, Sol Blair and others also participated in setting up two organisations then as their peak body organisations. So things were still very difficult for Aboriginal people, particularly in Sydney. And if it was like that for Aboriginal people in Sydney, then what would it be for people in Alice Springs, Halls Creek, or anywhere else, Cairns, Townsville? So the young men who went up to Canberra with about $5 in their pocket and a borrowed car, that was Gary Foley, Billy Craigie, and Bertie Williams, and a couple other guys too, I think, uh, went up and, and set up the embassy. Drew attention not just in Australia, it drew attention internationally. And they talk about the, using the term, the world is watching, well, that 
was probably the catalyst in Australia for the world was watching and the shabby treatment the police and the federal government gave those young men and their supporters when they tore down our tent and carted people off in the bull wagons and indeed punched and slapped people and kicked people around, went around the world. I was an apprentice motor bodybuilder then doing my trade. My brother, Gordon Briscoe, came around to my work, talked to my boss and convinced him uh, to give me time off to come to Canberra to, uh, to uh, support the movement of Aboriginal people. There, you know, there was there was a whole build-up with the medical service and the legal aid service, and indeed the catalyst for the land rights movement in full view. So I was there, I was, you know, um, I was a security. The day after the main aggravated attack by the police, we set up our own security people, and I was one of the security guards, and we we faced off against 400 police on the other side of the street. The police thought we were going to come and attack Parliament House. And I was also security for all our elders and speakers on the stage giving talks. You know, the likes of Gordon Briscoe, Chicka Dixon, Foley, Bruce McGuinness, Gerald Owen Briggs, Bobby Sykes, Paul Coe and all those guys. They were all talking that day. And I, along with one of the other security guards, had to keep anyone away from the main speech stage. It was a great time. A great time for me. It was a great enlightenment into the, the attitude of the government, the police, and indeed, a political movement. Bertie Williams was a vibrant young Aboriginal man I met in Sydney. He socialised in the various places we socialised. We had a hotel we used to all drink at and gather at called the Clifton Hotel. I think I met Bert at the Foundation for Aboriginal Affairs in the late 60s. His father all his uncles were well-liked musicians. And we would gather at the foundations on a Friday night and we would listen to the music and dance. Bert was just uh, one of the normal young men of the Aboriginal community in Sydney. Tony Curry, I think Tony came from Queensland, from around that area. He was a very quiet, gentle person, spoke softly, but spoke quite vigorously about the fact that Aboriginal people needed to take things further than what it had been taken to by the government after the referendum. We needed to take things into our own hands. They'd set up the medical service, they'd set up the legal service. No one gave us anything to do that. And we did it ourselves. The community did it themselves. And Tony was a part of that. And he lived on the same street as Neville Perkins and I did in, in Chippendale. And we often seen each other down at one of our local pubs outside of Redfern. And yeah, he was a very quiet man, very gentle man. But a very nice, vibrant, uh, <laughs> radical one might say. He was quietly spoken. He wasn't up there in front wanting to take on everybody. He was just working behind the scenes and I guess happy to do that, to participate. He was a good friend of mine, Billy Craigie. We were 16 years old together in Sydney, young kids. He was a very good friend of mine and basically grew up around the Redfern area. Later, he'd partnered up with Paul Coe's sister, Isabel Coe. They were frequent visitors to the Clifton Hotel. They were frequent visitors to our house for drinks and meals and songs and political discussions. Billy was indeed up front talking about the need for land rights, the need for change, the need for a new direction for Aboriginal people, rightfully so. And yes, he was up front. He was a, a person that wouldn't step back from anyone, be it a person on the street or indeed the police. So indeed he became a target. Billy was as staunch as they come. Michael Anderson is at the beginning of the embassy in 72, and Michael Anderson is still at the coalface trying to make sense of legislation and policy that seems never to meet the needs of the Aboriginal people on the ground. I believe his heart is in the right place. Giller was his nickname. I knew Giller from my high school days. He played for the same club I played for out of Sylvania Heights, and he was a very handy footballer. And he's very passionate about Aboriginal issues and Aboriginal rights. And uh, he come from a hard place. Well, it's no place for the faint-hearted, let me say. And back then, certainly not. Billy Faye came from that area as well. Gillo, or Michael, is a passionate orator of political issues. Yes, he was there. And yes, he's possibly, apart from Foley and co, the only one left of that original agitating group, the only one left that gets involved in celebrations of the tent embassy and so on. I can honestly say Michael gets out there, sees and talks 
and get what Aboriginal people are saying on the ground, not in the bureaucratic offices, not in the political arena of Parliament House, where nothing's really said. Michael can be seen to be off on his own agenda, but his direction is still the same, I would imagine. He hasn't changed in terms of his 1972 attitude and direction. Bobby Sykes was a keen agitator looking to right the wrongs of the Indigenous Australians. And she was obviously a good researcher. She had all her information together and she could talk about that information that she had acquired through her research and understanding of the movement, being a black woman herself. I don't believe she was an Aboriginal person, but she was on side with the Aboriginal person. She was well-received in Redfern. You know, people liked her in Redfern. I thought she was the most gorgeous woman on the planet when I first seen her. And when I, first, I might have had too many schooners at the Clifton Hotel that night. I thought she was very gentle and very upfront, putting the case forward for the rights of Aboriginal people. Well, from the first day I met Gary, I was in awe of him, okay? Because he could draw a crowd. He could talk. And he talked good political sense. He did never, ever attempt to um, indoctrinate anyone. He spoke from his heart about what was happening in front of his face and what he's seen happening to his people, whether they be the Bunjalung people or the mob down in Victoria. My impressions of Gary was he could take it to you. He could mix it with any level of society in political debate. He didn't have a degree then, but he had a mind and he had a great presence, great presence to lead and to, to talk. He was part of the Black Panther movement. And had he and the Black Panther movement gave the word to us, we would have went and did, I would imagine, what they asked us to do. That's how tense it was. But Gary wasn't about that. He was about exposing through his wonderful orotating methods and speaking the truth. Gary spoke the truth. Gary hated police because he'd seen what they did to us in Redfern. He'd seen what the police had done to his people in northern New South Wales. He'd seen all these things happen and how we had no recourse for it. So Gary had the, the fortitude to stand up there and tell it as it was and as it is, and he still has that fortitude and energy. I don't know how he does it. Now he's Dr. Gary Foley and part of the academic world of Melbourne, and rightfully so. I've had the great pleasure of knowing Gary most of my life, and I've had the great pleasure of having him speak at uh, you know universities I've been at, particularly uh, Monash. I had Gary come there and, and, and do, a, do a talk there for a, for a you know, packed-out house. Mm. People are interested in what he says. Now, yeah. People are not interested in what these Aboriginal politicians are saying today because they're, 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 you know, they they got nothing to say. You know, um, um, Jacinda Price, she's got nothing to say. She, you know, she's she's still in in uh, Gaga Land on on Yambi or whatever she was on. <laughs> you know, she's never read anything. She has no intelligence. Yeah, and she's been led by the nose by the right right wing to be their Aboriginal front. I haven't seen much of what um, you know others have done there, uh, but Gary Foley, in my in my mind, should be there. Yeah, he should be in Parliament. He should be talking the truth to the you know the powers to be on Capitol Hill. We were all hanging together. We were seeing the Black Panther movement in America. And then out of the blue, Walker, Foley, Craigie and others proposed the Black Panther movement here in Australia. And mainly to make the ears of the government listen. We are here. Do we have rights? Are you going to stop killing us in your jail? Are we going to retaliate? Are you going to give us better service? Do you think that was, I mean, you know, that was obviously the first time that the government felt threatened in, in any real way by Aboriginal people who were getting politically organised, but also... It was a in, massive threat to the government. Yeah. ASIO was out in force photographing people in Redfern, wherever we gathered, the 21st Squad of the Redfern Police Station were out in force 
bashing blackfellas on the streets of Redfern. Gordon Briscoe was a recipient of that. Fred Hollows had a hard time trying to find him. We knew he went to jail, prison. We, we knew he was taken by the 21st Squad. But where was he? We didn't know where he was. Fred Hollows found him at Long Bay Jail after being bashed. You know, broke his nose, cut his face up, came home in a very sorry state. So, you know, the, the Black Panther movement surely um, got the interest <laughs> of the powers to be, okay? Mm. They said, yeah, well, you're there, we're going to give it to you. And they gave it to us. Yeah. Right. So what was the, um, the, the mood within that core group uh, that we've spoken about? I mean, there were... Yeah, they, they, they were, the mood within them was very angry. Very angry, because I mentioned earlier, you know, the 67 referendum had brought nothing for Aboriginal people apart from decentralising missions and encouraging Aboriginal people to the regional areas and the urban areas of Australia with the promises and not providing, not coming good with their promises. You know, you could go down Everly Street, and you, you know, or anywhere, Newtown or, or Redfern, um, you'd see six families in one house. No one working, no one going to school, no real money coming in. Gammon. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was gammon. Their, their promises were very shallow. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the Black Panther movement was taking a, taking a, um, a stand and taking a leaf out of the the Black Panther, or the Black Movement in the in America. Okay, now, let me tell you, there were three great rugby league players that come out of Redfern at, at that, in that time. There was Ambrose Morgan, there was Sol Blair, and uh, uh, I can't think of the other guy's name, but he, they were great first-grade players from South Sydney. When they scored a try and did the Black Power fist in the air, okay, they never ran on the paddock for South Sydney ever again. Mm. Okay? Mm. Um, they, were, they were very talented and very clever footballers. Um, I just can't think of the last man's name, but he was, he was, he was a great player. And so was Sol Blair and um, Ambrose. Yeah, yeah. Sam, who were some, uh, apart from, you know, the, the, the big name players, I mean... Who else was there in the background, uh, you know, fighting the good fight, uh, doing doing the hard yards? I mean, who are some of the other people that you can remember? Oh, God, you know, there was, there was quite a few, uh, quite a few people in the background. You know, the, um, uh, their names I can't remember most of them, but you know, there was, you know, our legal our legal legal at the time was Eddie Newman. Okay, he was advising us on the legal issues. Um, there was, you know, there was um, people like, you know, Jack Charles. There was people like Zach Martin. There was people like um, Bobby Randall. There were people like, um, no, I don't think Briscoe was a, a major hitter, but he was there. He was in the background as well with Mum Cheryl Smith. Okay. Um and uh, Auntie Geraldine Briggs, okay, mm. Chicka Dixon, and indeed our, you know, the the start of all the, um, well, not the start, but one of the one of the key agitators of the sixties, Charles Perkins, always there, supporting in the background, strategising with um, with possibly with Co and you know. Um, um, Foley and the like, uh, yeah, uh, Isabel, Isabel, uh, Coe and Paul, you know, um, he was, he was always around, always a support, difficult for him at the time, 
okay, because his 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 status, I guess, uh, and his uh, involvement with the development of the Department of Aboriginal Affairs. Yeah. Yeah. That. yeah. Yeah. But you know, so so um, d- just people like that. Yeah, there were yeah. the Kevin Smiths, you know. Um, uh, you know, there you know there was um, people in the background having raffles, putting money together to send to the to the embassy and the people at the embassy to help feed them. You know, help help and support them because uh, the union the union was in the background. I think it was a BLS. I think they gave the I think they gave. Uh, um, Craigie and the lads money to um, to to fill the car up to get to Canberra. The car wasn't theirs; they borrowed the car. <laughs> I think it was a union delegate's car. At the end of the day, you know. So we had that sort of support behind us uh, in a you know in a in the background. Okay, not at the forefront. In the background, they had the good good sense to give us that support and remain. In the background, and not, um, you know, not be throwing old Jack Mundy up in front to speak for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, um, uh, Neville Bonner was, you know, he was just Neville Bonner. He was just a politician. He couldn't do jack shit. Okay. No. Yeah. Um, mm. So tell us about um, uh, this. You know, the first sort of standoff with the. Were you there on on that? That, I was I yeah. was on my way to to the embassy. I got there probably a couple of hours later. Okay. Yeah. And people were still putting the you know straightening up their clothes and brushing off the dust and uh, from their body and down in their throats. You know, having a beer. And so I got there on the night of the uh, the incident. Incident. Uh, but I was there ready for confrontation the next morning with everybody else. Not just Aboriginal people, you know. You got to realise there was a lot of European people there supporting us, and just as scared as we were of the numbers of police they brought out, the thugs they brought out from under Parliament House to confront us. Mm. Yes, and and the law eventually, the law, um, thankfully. Um, um, allowed us to remain and protest in front of Parliament House. Yeah. Now you, you, I think we had people behind us also like Gough Whitlam. Uh, Gough was the only one that come out and had a yarn and spoke at our podium from Parliament House. Mm. Yeah. So, so just after you got there, Sam, you know, you spoke about the, you know, the tension after the the the, the fracas and the the pushing and the shoving and people getting hurled into the vans and everything. I mean, um, what what effect did that have have on? Uh, I mean, you know, you've said obviously people were angry, but what was the next plan? What <laughs> where to from there? Well, as I said, the next morning we were standing and. Facing off with the uh, the police, ready to go into battle. Yeah. But you know, and I, I think on both sides there was hesitation, and I think on both sides there was a fear of this clash turning into a fully blown um, riot. You know. Mm. Yeah, we were there. We were ready. I was, you know, I was, I was scared. But I wasn't going to let them mongrels um, put anything over us, you know. Uh, and I think, uh, um, well, what we did, we organised ourselves so that we had um, uh, security people, and Solly Blair organised that. And there was about thirty of us by that time at, across the front of the people standing behind us, facing off with the police. Okay, men and women. You said you know we the... didn't have any. We didn't have any knives. We didn't have any uh, truncheons. We didn't have any shields. We just had ourselves, our bodies, 
to go in the battle. Yeah. And, mm. and, and you said there are a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of white people there. I mean, um, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're just the fact that they were there must have said, you know, something to the, to the Aboriginal people that they weren't there alone. I mean, there were, yeah. many, there were many white Australians who, who you know, who were in, in their camp. Well, I think it said something to all of us. It said something to, yes, you're right in what you say, but it also said something to the police that we were confronting and indeed to the federal government across the road. The support was, the support was swelling, okay, and overwhelming. Mm. For the, you know, and, um, you know, for the land rights movement. Yeah. That, the, that was the embryo of the land rights movement. Yes, we had, um, God give um, that old fella, Lingari, poured the sand and, and, and Fraser gave back the land. But the, this was the real start of the radical land rights movement. Mm. Mm-hmm. Sam, do you, do you just want to give us um, an overview? I mean, looking back 50 years, uh, 50 years coming up um, and... Uh, 50 you know, years is gone, mate. We've, we've gone past the 50 years, okay? Yeah. We're well, into the next 50. <laughs> <laughs> and we won't be around, brother. No, no. But, yeah. But, um, yeah, just an overview of, of you know, what what has been achieved, in uh, you know, since since that that day in Canberra. Well, that day in Canberra brought a lot of change, okay? It brought a lot of change for um, Aboriginal people in the Land Rights Act, okay? The very people that fought for the land rights issues are coming from New South Wales and like Queensland and so on, Victoria, did not get any land rights. The land rights went back to in inverted commas, if I can say, to the real Aborigines of the Northern Territory. Okay? Mm. And that, those, that, those land rights acts were very shallow and the land councils themselves were very shallow. The land rights act seemed to give land back to Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory, but when we got the land back, we couldn't... We got the land back so depleted in terms of stock, capital equipment, and the like, was so run down, we couldn't borrow as individuals and owners of land. We couldn't mortgage that to borrow money to re-establish the capital on the country that we would just hand back to. That had to come from the government. That had to come from... That had to come from the land council, which is a uh, an instrumentality of the federal government. Okay, they might have an elected board, but they, you know, they're insignificant really. Where the power is is with the federal government and the land council administrators. Okay, not with the board, not with the land council boards. No. Okay. Sam, and, uh, and, yeah. and look, let me give you a fine example of. Of, of the generosity and the outcomes of the of, of both the of the land land rights act uh, and the land rights act was a, was a, also a forerunner for heritage act and um, what we see was you know when we got when we were handed Uluru back we signed that paper to receive it back and five seconds after that we had to hand it back. To the federal, signed it back to the federal government for 99 years. Now, come on, that's not, you know, what's fair here, Paul? Mm. <laughs> how do you see it? Do you think that's fair? Do you think that the Land Rights Act has served Aboriginal people well? Well, it's all smoke and mirrors, mate. It's it certainly is, and you know the smoke and mirrors are are, are coming back to bite them on the ass because. They've, they've um, depleted all the employment pos- prospects and possibilities in many of the Aboriginal uh, uh, communities in the Northern Territory and um, set up these mega 
uh, shires and taken all responsibility away from Aboriginal people who were gainfully employed and there's no jobs on the communities for them now. They're all coming into town. And you live there. I go, I visit there and I hear it and I see it. They're all coming into town seeking a better life, but they're not finding it. So what do you expect? Yeah. It's come back to bite them on the ass, mate. Yeah. Sorry. No, you're right. that's, that's how I see it. Paul. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. Sam, anything else you wanted to say um, just about the embassy at all? Or I think we've sort of given it a good run. I mean... Um, yes, I, we have. And But from my perspective, that as a person, it was... Um, it was a coup. It was a great education for me. I was just an apprentice tradesperson, um, and uh, and I was socialising with uh, all the agitators. But I, you know, I, I didn't know how committed they were to taking these, taking the government to task on all these issues. Yes, I've seen it happening with the legal service and the medical service. And I've seen the, the attitudes of the government in, in responding to our, 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 you know, our cap in hand, give us some money stuff, budgets. Um, it, it, you know, I, I was able to talk to Aboriginal people from all over Australia at the embassy who were, who were expressing the same... Uh, disquiet about situations in their areas, in their states, the lack of land rights, the lack of any land, the lack of any ability to um, play a part in the economy. Okay? Mm. Mm. That's what I picked up from that. Mm. Yes, we were not playing any part in the economy and that, that, was, that was indeed shown um, uh, with the Land Rights Act and the, the, the handback of land to Aboriginal people and indeed the Uluru and, well, not handback. Non- Gammon handback. <laughs> non handback. Gammon handback. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, Sam, um, I, um, look, thank you very much for, uh, mm-hmm. for, for sharing your, your, your historical knowledge. Um, uh, mm-hmm. That's... Uh, Programs on tomorrow night on ABC. You might want to have a look at it, and um, mm-hmm. I think there's a you know they've obviously got a lot of um, footage from the ABC and IATSIS archives. Um, yes. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. I'll, I'll, um, you know, what what chance um, um, do you think I'd have of getting Foley to make make some comment, or is he in a different space at the moment? <laughs> I'm not sure where Gary's at at the moment. No. Um, I don't have Gary's contacts. Had I Gary's contacts, I would certainly pass them on to you so you could attempt to talk to him about it. I mean, you know, like I say, I, I was in awe of him at the embassy and I'm still in awe of him, okay? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's certainly a character. And, um... He's certainly a, he's, <laughs> he's a great character. He's been a great character of Aboriginal politics in this country, you know. Oh, very much, very much. Yeah. Okay, um, mate. Well, thank you very much. I'll um, I'll start working on this. Um, I've got to do interview the director of, of the special tomorrow, and I'll get his take. And um, um, I'll yeah, and and then I'll try and get this up on Friday. I'll try and see what photos I can pull together, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll have. Um, uh, uh, I've I've been trying to think of what to call it. Um, uh, maybe something like uh, um, the the Aboriginal Tent Embassy. Obviously, everyone will know that the ABC's just run a special on it. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, a different point of view, or well, I, one, I point of, one, one, a point of view. Yeah, a oh, point, a point, one point of view, a point of view, yes. a point of view. Yeah, mm. yeah, something like that. Just so we can we we, we can add something else to it. I'm. I'm surprised that they didn't get in contact with you because, I mean, as a producer-director, I would certainly have gone through everyone who was in in the images and found out if they were still with us and then had a yarn to them. But, um, yeah. 
Um, yeah, oh well, yeah, never mind. <laughs> you you had the you had the great foresight to do so, Paul. Well, I, yeah. I, I, well, thank you. <laughs> and um, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. we'll keep in touch. I'll. Um, um, yeah, mate. Um, no problem. Uh, we'll keep plugging away with your um, part two of your. Did, did you get through on that link yet that I sent you? Or yes, I did, brother. It was great. Thank you. Okay. Well, it was yeah, only. Yeah, yeah. It did come up on my phone. I listened to it this morning before I went out on my uh, <laughs> okay. cultural orientation field trip. Yeah, yeah. No, well, it was only a few minutes, but it's doing, you know, I think about 150 people have, have listened to it so far, which... which yeah, great. Yeah, yeah so um, I'll, I'll just keep adding to that. And, uh, yeah, I've got got a few. I've got you and Paulie Archie and um, yep. Quinton Hornhart. <laughs> I've still got oh, him. Oh, yeah, I'll quit, yeah. Still got him to do. Hornhart. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I want to track um, uh, Luigi Ruffino down. And um, wow, he's. Um, yes. I think he's. He's. Uh, I think uh, I'm pretty sure he's moved back to Italy to retire. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'm hoping he's still on the same mobile. I had his mobile number. I'll because uh, he was on the Gold Coast for 20, 30, yes. 20, 30 years, I think. But um, well, if you do catch up with the. With the uh, Italian stallion, could you could you pass on my hellos and uh, see if it's okay for me to ring him? Yeah, yeah. Pass on his number to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I will, mate. And um, I might even take a trip to Italy. I want to go to Greece to see George Atzmael. Yep. And yep. I want to go to Italy if if that's the case. If Luigi's there, because well, they're two people are two important new new Australians as we called them back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, who were friends of mine, you know? Yes, friends. I can I can honestly call friends of mine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Now there's still a big. Um, well, obviously the the Rafinos have sort of left town. I mean, Luigi mm. went down to the Luigi Senior went down to the Gold Coast and took his kids, and they're yep. all they're all married down on you know the, the, they've you know they're all back there. But you know the crazy thing is like no one ever leaves Alice. You know that. <laughs> People are still connected, even though they're not living here. They're yeah. still, they still they still know what's going on, um, mm-hmm. and and they still you know. It was funny when George came back; he'd um, he'd shrunk a lot, you know. I mean, old age because he used to be quite yeah. a, quite a tall guy from my memory. Tall, strapping young man, wasn't he? Yeah, and I saw this little this <laughs> stunted Greek guy, and I thought, bloody hell, that's George. <laughs> he shrunk a bit. <laughs> But um, yeah, still yeah. the same. Still, you know, uh, still George. They're all yeah. Uh, yeah they haven't changed. The, the the whole family. Um, two of the good. Well, I mean, Stephen is still here, and Michael, Nina, mm-hmm. one of the other sisters. I think Tony's yeah. in Ad- Tony is in Adelaide. Yes. Um, and mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, George is back on Cos, but he's got the the hotel to run over there. So yeah. Yeah, he. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd love to just go and sit down and do him a few paintings, you know. Oh, that'd be lovely, mate. Yeah, yeah be really yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Sam. Well, you have a lovely right, cr- Christmas, mate, and um, keep yeah, keep you in too. touch. Yeah. Yeah. All the best to you and your family, mate. Thank you very um, much. Yeah. Likewise. Um, if you're speaking to um, um, Mr. Hornhart, pass on my finest <laughs> fellows. <laughs> well, he's getting on a bit now. He's down. Mm. Uh, in the Clare Valley, uh, in oh right, he yeah. moved from Darwin. Yeah, he's he's yeah. down in uh, Riverton, I think it is Riverton. Okay, yeah, oh, out that way. So, and 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 you know something not funny, but his his wife and daughter identify as Aboriginal. Right, and uh, okay. this this sort of came out not out of well, I, I, I yeah, I. I I, I was talking to his wife, and I'm, the way she was talking, and, and then he he said to me later, he said, "Both my wife and daughter identify as Aboriginal," <laughs> which was, yeah, um, I, th- I, I don't know if I mentioned down at um, uh, Apatula Fink, they've mm. reserved a plot for him and his family when they pass for them to be buried out there. Oh, great! What a gesture! Yeah, I thought yeah. that was bloody amazing. Um, yeah, because you know, he was there. Two years, I think, at Fink before he came into Ross Park. Mm-hmm. So um, he would have seen a lot there um, in yes. that time, you know. Yes. Amazing stuff. But um, anyway. And the, an amazing man. Yeah, okay. very interesting. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. All right. I've got to press right. on, mate. You have a good one. Keep well. Okay, Paul. Catch you. All the best, mate. Catch you. Bye. Bye-bye.
yes, he's taken control of what he thinks is his right. Um, but he, you know, he has been pulled in the line by the the, the younger the younger um, elements of the embassy, um, for the likes of you know um, uh, Jenny Munro and Lyle. Um, they've had a long history. They've been they were there back there in '82. They were back there in '92. You know, and uh, um, um, sadly, uh, Gillard or Michael uh, was was nowhere to be seen. So you know, the, the new brigade had um, asserted their right and suggested that you know um, uh, he not lead or speak for everyone because he's got his own agenda. He's got his own movement. Mm. Now, Michael's got his own agenda um, and others have their agenda, but we're trying to, you know, stay on track with this issue of sovereignty. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And um, um, others are trying to lead it some other way. Right. So, you know, there's a fraction. There's a fraction. Any political party has factions, and they fracture because of that, those factions within. But, the good thing about it was, um, uh, I was there in, in, in uh, recently, all right, in 2022, and I've seen them come together, and I've seen Michael, um, uh, you know, um, make amends and, and, and pull himself back into uh, to some form of, you know, togetherness, not him on his own leading the charge. Mm. Mm. Um, I mean, you, you know, you've seen the terrible, terrible incident when uh, Julia Gillard was uh, um, dragged out of the um, out of the restaurant in Parliament House, near Parliament, old Parliament House there, and Michael Michael nearly got trampled by the police. And he's not a young man, um, so you know, it's, um, it shows his uh, tenacity and shows his commitment to the movement. Yeah. Yeah. For the betterment of Aboriginal society generally, and in Michael, I mean, Michael travels around. He he doesn't stay in Walgett or Sydney or anywhere and uh, big note himself. He gets out there in the community and listens to what Aboriginal people are saying, what Aboriginal people want. You know, there's uh, there's a whole yeah, there's a whole undermining of um, uh, movements of the Aboriginal movement through. You know um, the, the mechanism of government and 